This is the Bridge Church Podcast, an audio ministry of the Bridge Church, a Nazarene community in Oahu, Hawaii. Please visit us in person or check us out online at bridgenaz.org. We hope to hear from you. We hope to see you. God bless. Mahalo. So when I was a young boy, uh, my Aunt Denise, who we called um, Nisi, she gave me, um, well, she, she was supposed to take me to uh, Florida for a summer vacation. And I was supposed to go with her, but my, um, I was supposed to go with my cousin, my grandma. It was supposed to be a big family affair, but something came up. I don't remember what it was, and she prevented me from going. It prevented me from going. And so she bought me a snow globe from Florida, and that was sort of the souvenir that my aunt Nisi gave me, a snow globe. And inside the snow globe was this little snowman with, uh, you know, the typical thing, the carrot nose and the hat on top. And of course, whenever you would shake the snow globe, right, all the little flakes would uh, flurry up, flutter up to the top, and it created a snowstorm inside the snow globe whenever you'd shake it. A couple years after that, Nisi died. And uh, she was young. She died really young, in her 30s. It was, it was a difficult death, a really tragic death. And over the last couple of months, uh, we just watched her grow more and more frail. Um, it was tough, painful to witness. And so I held on to that snow globe. Like with everything I had, I held on. I treasured that snow globe. I cherished it. It was a sentimental treasure for me. And uh, early into my teen years, even, I kept that snow globe. And I sat it on my dresser, even as a teenage boy. I didn't care who saw it. It meant something to me. And then my little sister broke it. (laughs) The water just oozed out. Uh, She cracked it. It wasn't fixable. And it crushed me. I was devastated. Uh, And if I'm honest... It's been about three decades, probably, since I've thought about that snow globe. Uh, Just until this week, that I hadn't thought about the snow globe until I was preparing for the message. And frankly, I don't think I owned another snow globe. I don't think I've ever owned another snow globe in my life. Um, Just that one. But this week, snow globes, for some reason, have been on my mind. And as I often do, I just, all through the week, I, I kept coming back to this idea of snow globes, the image of a snow globe. Um, I, I kind of have this, I don't know if I'd call it an obsession, uh, but an intense fascination maybe with just looking at everyday things like a snow globe and just thinking kind of deeply about them, like making connections with them. And so I started thinking this week about how once you shake a snow globe, it can never be the same as it was before you shook it. <laughs> the centerpiece, right, may be the same, that the snowman or whatever's in there, but the water, the bubbles, and the snowflakes that are in there, they're always gonna be, they're always gonna end up in a different configuration. Right? After it's shaken. And that that whole idea, I could spend an inordinate amount of time, inordinate amount of time thinking about that. But I started, I started like dwelling on that and thinking that in a sense, snow globes, right? They're kind of like snapshots of our larger world. 
And uh, to put it differently, they're microcosms of the big cosmos. They're little worlds. Maybe, maybe in some snow globes you have an Eiffel Tower in there. And you shake it and you create the snowstorm around the Eiffel Tower. Or maybe you have another one with the Golden Gate Bridge in there. You shake it and you create the snowstorm around the Golden Gate Bridge. Or maybe a little cabin, some picturesque scene. Shake, snowstorm. And I was thinking about how maybe our world is like a snow globe, right? This last year, it's sure been crazy. Shake, storm. Right? A snowstorm of global proportions. And you know what? The things will never be the same. They can't be. And, and maybe our lives, like if we zoom in closer to our lives, are just little snow globes that in a way reflect the bigger world. Each of our lives has been shaken up profoundly and dramatically, and they're never going to be the same as they were before. Can't be. Maybe we needed the shake, some of us. Maybe not. Uh, the Bridge Church, church perhaps, has its own little snow globe story. We've certainly felt the shake, haven't we? We've experienced some of the snowstorm. And so it's no surprise when I turned to Genesis, I was thinking along these lines, there's a bigger story, a macrocosm. God has told his people from the start that they must, they need to be fruitful and multiply and fill the land with his image and glory. And when we get to the end of Genesis 11, we see a microcosm of that. The story of Abram. And it's like just looking into a little snow globe. It's full of these moments, his little snow globe, where his world is shaken and chaos ensues. He's blinded, if you will, by the snowstorms. He, 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 he acts in disobedience. And sometimes that's what causes a snowstorm or a storm in his life. These acts of disobedience. For those of you who have been tracking with this sermon series, uh, Lot and Sarai and the acts of disobedience uh, along with them. But this story, it's, it's a snow globe that we can actually enter into and we can let this story shake us again or we can resist the shake. We can let it transform us or we can resist. We can let it change us or we can resist. We can let it shake our little microcosmic lives our little worlds, our little kingdoms, or we can resist it. And so here's my conviction. You don't want to resist it. Shrink yourself down to size and enter into Abram's story and Hagar's story and Sarai's story, this little snow globe world, and let it shake you. And when the dust and the snowflakes settle, something beautiful will emerge. You can trust that. You can trust God on that. There's not a snowman in there, not a cabin, not an iconic building. What you see standing in the middle of your little snow globe is the image of a slave. A slave of God. A slave of God, you, who has withstood the storm and stood firm. A slave of God who belongs to Adonai and has committed a life to Yahweh. 
to El Shama, the God who hears, and El Roy, the God who sees, El Shaddai, the God Almighty. You see, you are not just any slave. I'm not just any slave. The slave in the middle of the snow globe is different. This slave has pledged his or her allegiance to God. He or she has a biblical faith, a faith of biblical proportions. But what, what does that mean? Biblical faith. What is biblical faith, right? I can tell you this. It's not a banal platitude, like an empty platitude, some empty Christian saying or phrase, some catchphrase, some cliche. It's much more biblical faith. As one person has said, biblical faith is about living as if something were true. Not blindly, not irrationally, but in the absence of empirical proof. Biblical faith is about loyalty, trust, devotion, about durative commitments lived out over time. Biblical faith, according to most of the narratives in Scripture and the laments and the prophecies, is about failing and acknowledging responsibility and receiving forgiveness and starting over. Biblical faith is mostly, hear me on this, biblical faith is mostly about human failure and the possibility of redemptive transformation. Biblical faith, did you get that? Is mostly about our failure and the possible transformation, the redemptive transformation. That's what we find within the snow globe that we're calling Genesis 17. Human failure, it's on full display, right there for all of us to see, but so is redemptive transformation. And that transformation, it shows up in true God-like fashion in the least of expected places in a slave. In a slave. A slave standing there, front and center, in the middle of this scriptural snow globe. So we're going to have a look at this story. In Genesis 17, it begins this way. It says, when Abram was 99 years old, Adonai appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty El Shaddai. Walk before me and be blameless. I'll make my covenant between me and you and will multiply you very much. And so Abram is 99 here. He dies when he's 175, according to the scripture. So he's just past this halfway point in his life. It's been more than two decades since he left his father and his homeland. It's been 13 years since Hagar, whose name, by the way, literally means the slave, Hagar in Hebrew, uh, or the immigrant, rather, sorry. So perhaps what her, her name, Hagar, is actually a slur. Everybody's going around calling her the immigrant, the immigrant woman, right? So there's this theophany, this appearance by God to Abram, and God speaks, and he reiterates the family motto to Abram, the motto of Genesis 1, and he reinforces his promise to make Abram, again, a multitude. There's something really important to pick up here beyond the theophany and the speech from God. It's this phrase, walk before me and be blameless. And you good readers of scripture who have been trekking with this story, where have we heard that? We've heard it twice already, at least in Genesis. We heard it about Enoch, who was walking with God. And we heard it about Noah, who was righteous and blameless, walking with God. We also heard it about Adam, as he was walking with God in the garden. And so I can't reiterate this point enough that the covenant with Abram that we're about to read of in just a minute, it's, it's 
The way it's framed is on purpose. Abram, he's like this new Adam. And he's like a new Noah. He's the guy who's bringing in a new covenant, God's, uh, God's covenant. And so let's look at this. You'll see what happened after the covenant uh, with, a with Adam is that God came to Noah and he elaborated on it. Or to put it differently, there was further revelation. And so the same thing happens with Abram. The everlasting covenant, the Berito Lam that God made with Noah, God elaborates on it here in Genesis 17. And here's what the elaboration entails right here. Well, we're missing a verse. Verse 3 says, Abram fell on his face and God spoke with him saying, As for me, look, my covenant is with you. You will be the father of a multitude of nations. Your name is going to no longer be called Abram, but your name will be Abraham. Okay? For I have made you a father of a multitude of nations, and I'll make you very, very fruitful, and I'll make nations of you. Kings will come from you. I'll establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be a God to you and to your offspring after you. I'll give to you and your offspring after you the land where you're traveling. All the land of Canaan, that's the promised land, for an everlasting possession. I will be their God. So Abram, he's heard all of this before. Right? This, this probably got his attention. He heard all this before. This, this by the way, uh, is not a new covenant in addition to what we saw in Genesis 15 a couple weeks ago. This is, this is sort of a, a, um, a continuation of that. So you remember that story in Genesis 15, the really weird story, right? Abram cuts the animals in half and then like walks through the middle of them and kind of like falls asleep right there in the middle of them. God is this uh, flaming oven and is like passing through these weird animal parts. This is a confirmation of it that we're, we're reading up here, the ratification of it. And Abram is going to become the father, the, the father of a multitude of nations and kings. It's an everlasting covenant. It also involves a promise of land that he'll get as an everlasting possession. And so, Abram, he gets this name change. Abram meant something like the exalted ancestor, but he gets Abraham. Um, and, and it's kind of a pun, right? A joke. And so, God puts the ha in Abraham. He makes a joke here. He gives him a slight name change. And now, Abraham means the father of many nations or a multitude of nations. By the way, our word of the week. Here's a fun word for you, paronomasia, which just means pun or wordplay. That's the fancy word for it. We're going to keep reading. Look at this. God said to Abram, as for you, you'll keep my covenant, and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep, between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. Now, this is kind of weird, right? Let's keep reading. You all shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin. Kind of uncomfortable a little bit to talk about this. It'll be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old will be circumcised among you, every male throughout your generations. He who was born in the house or bought with silver from any foreigner who is not of your offspring. He who was born in your house uh, and who is bought with your silver must be circumcised. My covenant will be in your flesh for a perpetual or everlasting covenant. The uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that life shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So we come to this mysterious passage, and you show up here on Sunday, and I'm talking about circumcision, right? Uh, the scripture's talking about circumcision. 
But everything God was saying up to this point, Abraham, he's probably nodding. That sounds good. You're going to give me land? You're going to give me lots of children? This is all very good. And then God says, but your foreskin, cut it. Uh, right? Abraham must have had to pick his jaw up from the floor. What? What? Uh, yeah, look down. Cut. It looked down and cut. And Abraham began, but God! God! Right? He interrupts and God says, do the same to Ishmael. Cut it. Right? Cut, snip. And all of your offspring, in fact, cut, snip. Talk about a snow globe shaking moment. Right? Snipping does not sound fun. So obviously, the question to be asked is why? Why do we have God telling him to go snip? Right? Why does God want Abram to cut his nether regions? And what does it have to do with anything? Why is this here? This is where I tell you that there are a lot of theories. A tons. This has been debated for thousands of years, and I have enough time today to tell you all of these interesting theories, but I'm going to share with you my own perspective of what this is all about. Circumcision marked Abraham and all of his children as slaves of God. That was the point of it. See, Paul in the New Testament, by the way, is very fond of speaking of himself this way, as a slave of God. So, you see, circumcision is meant to be an everlasting mark in the flesh. Some later Jews, they found ways to try to reverse the circumcision so that they could go into the Greek gymnasiums, the baths, and it wouldn't be embarrassing. But that was considered heresy, anathema. It was the switch masters, so to speak. To reject God's master. The Hebrews, they weren't the only ones circumcising at this time, but they were the only ones circumcising babies. And this marked them as members of the everlasting covenant, as everlasting slaves of God. When we read in Exodus, for example, a master, there's a story where the master cuts a mark. He snips the slave's ear. He's essentially branding him. He snips the slave's ear, and that's supposed to be that way forever. It marks him forever as owned by that slave owner. That makes sense that you'd cut the ear, right? Because the slave is supposed to listen to the master. And here in Genesis, where the motto is be fruitful, multiply, and fill the land, well, when they cut their man part and put the mark there, it was symbolic of, of fertility. Right? And uh, being a slave to God in that way, that my offspring will be committed to you. They will be your slaves. And as for females, as, as far as being part of the household, they were just considered like grandmother in or grandfather in. And so just as God passed through those animal skins in Genesis 15, now God is going to pass through Abram's skin and the skin of all of his line. And that offspring, all born, will be God's slaves, God's people. This, however, wouldn't be the only time that Abram's children would see life, right? You know the other stories in Genesis. The sacrifice of Isaac that we're going to read about in a couple of weeks, right? It's only a few chapters away. Abram's got a knife again above his kid. But here's perhaps another aspect of this. Child sacrifice was common at this time. Specifically to this god named Molech. Uh, he's the god of our Planned Parenthoods today. In fact, the sacrifice of Isaac looks like a child sacrifice. 
right, when Abraham's up there getting ready to do that. But circumcision, it actually stands as a direct contrast to the rest of the culture, stands in contrast to child sacrifice. Because you see, child sacrifice ends a child's life. Circumcision, on the other hand, is the sign that the child's life will be preserved. And we will have children and multiply and fill the land, and they'll be preserved everlastingly. They're the everlasting lineage of Abram. And so God appears, and he speaks, and he gives his command to circumcise, and Ishmael undergoes the knife, and as does Abraham. And what happens next? After Abraham's obedience, it's another name change. It's a firm promise, more snow globe shaking. Look at the text that says this. God said to Abram, Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you should not call her name Sarai anymore, but her name will be Sarah. I will bless her. And moreover, I'll give you a son by her. Yes, I'll bless her, and she will be a mother of all nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. And then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, <laughs> Will a child be born to him who is 100 years old? Will Sarah, who's 90 years old, give birth? And so this time when Abraham falls on his face, he doesn't pray, he laughs. Earlier in the story, he prayed. He laughs at God here. He laughs at his wife. As if things weren't bad enough between Abraham and Sarah. Now he's laughing at her. He digs himself in a little bit deeper with the wife. Maybe she was there listening to Abraham laugh. You ever thought of it? Maybe she heard Abraham laugh. Maybe he pointed at her when he was laughing. He looked at her. Maybe this was his way, this laugh was a way of getting back at her for everything she had just done with him. I'm going to laugh in your face. Maybe he wanted to get under his wife's skin. Maybe he wanted to get revenge. And so we see this dysfunctional family history. Maybe you can relate. You ever laughed at your spouse just to piss him or her off? Derek shaking his head. No. Um, <laughs> ever, ever laugh at your wife just to get a reaction? Come on. <laughs> ever said something hurtful just to gas your spouse up? Well, maybe it was more innocent, right? God made this first joke. Uh, it's a pun on Abraham's name. And then he makes another pun on Sarah's name. Maybe that's why Abraham is laughing, because this God who's speaking is making puns. Maybe. Either way, God finally comes through on his promise that he promised way back in chapter 11 and 12. Right? And so what's the first thing that Abraham does when God says, look, I'm good on my promise? The first thing he does is he challenges God. In the previous chapter, many are inclined to read the text as if God created Abram with, with this just like self-righteousness, right? Or that he was just a very righteous guy. And here we are, a few verses later, the same can hardly be said here. Look at this exchange now between Abraham and God. What happens next after God says, I'm going to deliver on my promise. Abraham said to God, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. And God said, on the contrary, no, right? On the contrary, Sarah, your wife, will bear a son. You shall call his name Isaac. I'll establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. Sounds familiar. As for Ishmael, I've heard you, the God who hears. Sure enough, 
I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and will multiply him very, very much. And he will become the father of 12 princes and I'll make him a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you at this moment next week. When he finished speaking with him, God went up from Abraham. And so God, he's already made two puns. He makes a third here. His third pun, he names the kid Isaac, laughter, or the God who laughs. It's not clear whether it's a sinister laugh, what's going on here, but God certainly laughs. It's almost as if Moses in writing Genesis need to pull us out of the deep swirl of deception and intense hurt and give his readers a punchline, something comedic, a comedic breath of fresh air. And so in a sense, even in the midst of the tip snipping, we get a sort of scriptural laugh track here in Genesis 17. And at the same time, there's still this sense that if Abram cannot carry out a single command in obedience, when he has to constantly wander off into the world into disobedience, he's going to have to take the form of a slave, God's slave. All his people will. Become my slave. Shake, shake, shake. Become my slave. You keep trying to not be my slave. Become my slave, right? You'll remember what I said a few minutes ago, that biblical faith is mostly about human failure and the possibility of redemptive transformation. The God who marks men's misdirections with the mark of his covenant who marks them as his slaves will redeem the social label. These slaves will be transformed into kings, God says. There'll be a multitude of nations, God says. They'll bear God's name and bear God's image. They'll be his people and they'll be, his, they'll be, sorry, they will be his people. He will be their God. And so this is a story about human failure and redemptive transformations. And I think every single person in this room can relate to that, at least to some degree. Maybe it hits a little too close to home, in fact. Because the stark reality is this, is that your story, just like mine, is just this. It's one of failure, after failure, after failure, after failure, us standing in need of redemption and transformation. Right? And so our story collectively is one of a movement from failure to redemptive transformation. That's the macrocosm, the big story. And the microcosm, our little personal snow globe lives, our little personal snow globe worlds and stories, they're essentially the same as the bigger story. Scenes of failure and redemptive transformation. And the only way that God can, he brings us failed slaves who never cease to be his slaves because we bear his mark in our skin, in our heart, and in our lives, we become slave kings and slave queens. Sounds like an oxymoron. It kind of is. We're God's slaves. Slave kings and slave queens. That's not it. There's more. Look at these last few verses in the chapter Abram took Ishmael his son, all who were born in his house, and all who were bought with them, and all who were bought with his silver, every male among the people of Abraham's house, and circumcised the flesh of their foreskin on that very day, as God had spoken to him. In other words, on that day they all became slaves to God. Abram was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. He was 99 when he finally became a slave to God. 
Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he became a slave to God, when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And on that very day, both father and son, Abraham and Ishmael, became slaves to God. They were circumcised. All the men of his house, those born in the house and those bought with silver from a foreigner, became slaves to God with him. They were circumcised with him. And so as I said, we're just past this halfway point in Abraham's life, when in the span of one day, this whole chapter, what we just read, occurs in one day. All this goes down. He's been on this covenant journey, this covenant quest. And here's something I really hope you can latch on to. This covenant journey or this quest, it wasn't unique to Abraham. I alluded to this earlier. His story was shaped by Adam's. And his story was shaped by Noah's, especially Noah's. Noah was the first to be given an everlasting covenant. Abraham is the next. The covenant, covenant with Abraham is building on the one that was given to Noah. And what's awesome is that the Old and New Testaments, they carry the story forward to the New Covenant in Jesus. And there's this distinct pattern that emerges. The story has a threefold shape to it. There's this appearance from God of theophany. And then there's the giving of a covenant. And then there's a journey of living that covenant out. That persists all through the story of Scripture. And so there's a sense in which this bigger story of Israel's fits within an adventure, a quest, a journey story. One scholar put it this way, far away we learn. Uh, he's talking about quests or journeys. We learn there's some priceless goal worth any effort to achieve, a treasure, a promised land, something of infinite value. From the moment that the hero learns of this prize, the need to set out on the long hazardous journey to reach it becomes the most important thing to him in the world. Whatever perils, or diversions lie in wait on the way, the story is shaped by that one overriding imperative, and the story remains unresolved until the objective has been finally, triumphantly secured. And this is precisely what we get here with Abraham. It's what we get with Noah. It's what we get with Moses later. Right? The covenant journey, it's a, a pattern, a paradigm, created by the, created whereby the Israelites, they see themselves as heirs, of Adam and Noah and Abraham and Moses. And as heirs of Noah, right, they had the inheritance of the earth, the promise to never again be wiped out by the flood, the land. And as the seed of Abraham, they had the inheritance of Canaan and the promise of generational prosperity and multitudes. And as followers of Moses, right, they had the inheritance of the law given at Sinai and the promise of protection from their enemies. Or to put it differently, the story of Noah, Abraham, and Moses, they were told and preserved in the form that they were because they functioned as microcosms of the story of Israel, of God's people as a whole. And so Abraham's story, it's a microcosm of the bigger story, but it mirrors it. And so we can zoom in on Abraham, and here's the thing. We can zoom in on ourselves and see ourselves there if we're willing to, even in Abraham's story, how we bail on God, how we treat God, how we leave God hanging, and then we roam about in our lostness. Or I could put it this way. Abraham's snow globe isn't too different than our own, isn't too different than my own. And once we let God get a hold of our little worlds, our little snow globes, our little lives, and shake it, as soon as the, the specks settle, what we should see standing there in the middle of that snow globe is a slave. We are that slave. 
slave to God. No longer slaves to fear, but children of God, slaves of God. Think back to the flood story. You remember the story. God hung his rainbow in the sky. And the bow wasn't a sign for us. We often get that, that kind of wrong. It's a sign for God. Right? God has hung up his weapon, so to speak, his bow, and it's a reminder of himself that for himself, whenever God sees the rainbow, that he will never again destroy the land or flood the land on account of human violence. And what he wants, whenever God wants to strike the earth again and just be done with it already, he sees that rainbow and he retains his anger. It's a reminder to God's self to be long-suffering and patient and merciful. And similarly, get this, this is the amazing thing. Circumcision, the snipping, the mark in our flesh, isn't primarily or merely or only a sign or a reminder for us, but it's a sign to God to remind God, look, when we behave, misbehave, maybe sexually misbehave, or when we distort sexuality, or we've slid into disorientation, or when we become sinful or disobedient, that when God wants to look on us and just be done with us, we have his mark, and we are still his. And it's a reminder to him, I'm going to be long-suffering and patient and merciful with my child. He's my slave. She is my slave. That's the beauty of circumcision. You see that now. To go out and get there. We have in us this mark. The mark designating us as God's slaves because we're owned by them. Becoming a slave of God is in fact what the covenant journey is all about. Circumcision is that mark. The reminder to God that we are His. The reminder to God that we, that He has promised to be long-suffering and merciful toward us in our little snowball worlds and stories. And when you put all of that together, you see the macrocosm. It's actually the story of us all. A history of what it means and looks like to be a slave of God. Just as our bodies are marked on the outside, our hearts are transformed on the inside. Our names are renewed like Abraham and Sarah. And we take on a new name, as the New Testament teaches us, the name of Christ Jesus himself. The king of kings, as Revelation says. And here's one of the craziest parts of it all. While Genesis 16 and 17 focuses a lot on Abraham and Sarah, we can't forget Hagar, Hagar, the immigrant. She's the only one explicitly named as a slave in this story. She's the Egyptian immigrant, the slave woman. She's different than Abraham and Sarah, but here's the thing. She's the only one in the story that actually gets God. Her slave story comes along and shakes everybody else's world up. It becomes paradigmatic for Father Abraham's many sons and daughters. So this just brings us, we're at the end here, it brings us to the bottom line. That you can be many things, but being God's slave tops them all. So who do we want to be? God's slave. What kind of church? God's slave. To borrow from a pastor friend's Facebook post this week. Bridge, I want us, here's how I want us to think. We have specific ministry to do in a particular community with a specific group of people. 
with our few gifts, with our many flaws. And you know what? The work isn't going to make us famous. It won't make us rich. It's not going to grow our platform. It won't increase our status in the eyes of the world or in the eyes of other congregations. But we don't care. We don't care. We're not here to be noticed. We're not here to be applauded. We're not here to be impressive. We're here to be faithful to Jesus Christ. We're here not to be slaves of fear. It's going to happen with God. We're not here to be slaves of fear. We're here to be slaves of God. And there's no way to call. How often do you think of yourself in those terms? Like throughout each day, a slave to God. I should do this this way because I'm a slave to God. Or throughout the week, I should do this this way because I'm a slave to God. We need this mindset more and more. We bear the marks of slaves of God. And so, may the Lord shake our snow globes, even this globe, until we realize this and live into it fully with untamed trust. Amen? Amen. Let's stand. I want to bless you. And turn your palms upright and receive this benediction. And now, brothers and sisters, may you go marked as slaves of God, slave kings and slave kings. Not to be noticed, not to be popular, but to serve, to live with you and love. Go now, brothers and sisters, and be slaves of God. Amen.